Turn with me to the letter to Galatians, chapter 2. Galatians, chapter 2, and we will begin reading verse, from verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Let's conclude here at the end of chapter 2. The, vo- the verse that I feel inspired to focus on is primarily verse 20, and we'll connect it to uh, the other verses that we had uh, read as well. But we'll call it uh, this afternoon's message. The key verse for this afternoon is verse 20, where the Apostle Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. And let's just stop right there and uh, meditate on that statement. What does that mean to be crucified with Christ? Yet, he says, I live. Nevertheless, I live. And so we see that this is a figurative language. In the body, he's not crucified with Christ because he is still living. And so what does this mean, then, to be crucified with Christ? If we... uh, Crucifixion is um, an instrument of death, uh, torture and death, very cruel death. Uh, the main point being uh, in for crucifixion being a, making a public example of criminals that those that might think of doing things of that nature uh, would see the suffering and shame of someone else and uh, act as a deterrent not to do so. The end of it though was death, some prolonged suffering for days in some cases, and uh, death. Now, if we see here how he's talking about also uses the word dead to the law in verse 19. Uh, Verse 16 talks about uh, the law um, as well, that we're not justified by the works of the law and contrast that with faith. And so if we look at a number of things that the, the apostle teaches us that we are to be dead to, what he is crucified to, the things that have been crucified in him. And this is a recurring theme in a number of his letters, which we will make connections to uh, about that. So the first thing that he says here that he's dead to, 
which could be crucified to as well, is the law and its place and its purpose. Uh, meaning he was uh, subject to the purpose of the law, but not the way it was previously understood. Uh, now being alive to Christ, he is no longer subject to the primarily the ceremonial law and the penalties of the law because Christ has delivered him from those things, delivered him from the bondage of sin, and therefore delivered him from the penalty of the law. But also <clears throat> delivered from the ceremonial aspects of the law. And he makes reference to this uh, in other places uh, about being uh, circumcised. That's implied in some of the writing here because the, part of the whole problem with the uh, that he was addressing to the Galatian church is that they were reverting back to what is known as Judaizers, uh, meaning the uh, those that would try to uphold the law at the same time, kind of hang on to the law and hang on to Christ at the same time. And uh, he's uh, writing to them saying that doesn't work that way. In verse 16, he describes this aspect of justification. We are not justified by the law, by the deeds of the law, by upholding the moral law, by upholding the code, by going through this, the various sacrifices and the rituals and uh, uh, upholding the Ten Commandments and so forth. These things do not provide justification. We are still guilty before God because we are unable. No man is able to keep it all perfectly. Uh, I think it's the Apostle James writes somewhere, if uh, someone... Uh, is guilty in one point of the law. In a sense, he's failed the whole law. You have not kept up the whole, have, have not kept the law. And this idea of justification by faith is not only a New Testament idea. It's uh, amplified there, shall we say, but even uh, the Apostle Paul makes descriptions about uh, Abraham and how he was justified by faith. And God counted his faith as attributed to him then as righteousness uh, when he trusted in God's word and obeyed it. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, as he makes that statement and uh, describes that, ascribes this to the Galatian church. We <clears throat> done this, and therefore we have believed in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by the faith of Christ. He says the same thing twice in, in almost the same Words, not by the works of the law. And then he says the reverse, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So he sort of says it three times, uh, repeating the same words a number of ways to really drive home this point that uh, we are not justified by the law. And so applying this statement here, but being crucified with Christ, one of those applications mean we are crucified to the law, dead to the law. He also uh, Further to this point, he says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. And he's making a strong statement here. To frustrate the grace of God in this context would mean to make it of no effect, to, to nullify it, or to do away with it, or to set aside the grace of God. And you can see how he, he sets this up, that if someone is in, intends or lives a life or has the, the belief system that he's justified by their works, well, then you don't need Christ. You don't need his death on the cross. And uh, that's how he says here, if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. His work on the cross isn't meaningful to you, isn't necessary for you. Uh, but that's a fallacy uh, in the sense that no one can be justified by their own works. Uh, 
And therefore, we do need the righteousness of Christ, or the righteousness which comes by faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore not frustrate the grace of God, not live as though it were meaningless, as though it were not necessary, or as though it were optional, instead of something that is required, that we live by trusting in his grace. Dead to the law, I am crucified with Christ. The second point to, to point out here about what is the what is he crucified to and what are we dead to, he writes in Romans chapter 6 quite uh, clearly, and uh, this is certainly a very obvious point, that we are dead to sin. We are to no longer live in sin. Romans chapter 6 verse 6 says this here, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, there's that word crucified, with Christ, him meaning Christ, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Do you see the similarity in what he just said here with what we had read in Galatians 2.20? He's saying exactly the same thing. He's crucified with Christ, and he's alive in Christ. said the same thing here in Romans. If we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And so being dead to sin, then, would mean we no longer live in a sinful lifestyle. Uh, that is what uh, transformation is all about, regeneration. We no longer live in that lifestyle, no longer have those desires and those passions. Uh, in a couple of chapters later in Romans uh, 8.13, when he talks about living in the spirit and not in the flesh, he says, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, mortify means to kill, means to destroy. So there's this connection with crucifixion again, right? That's a killing, destroying instrument, shall we say. Mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Those sinful desires we are to kill. In Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul uh, repeats this theme, and he elaborates on this uh, as well here. Uh, chapter 3, verse 3, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. You see the recurring theme there. You are dead by being crucified with Christ, and your life is hid in Christ in God, alive to Christ. And then he says in verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then ye shall also appear with him in glory. We'll uh, look at that a little bit later, talking about the hope and the promise of future glory. But for the present, in verse 5, mortify, therefore, there's that word again, to kill and to destroy, therefore, your members, meaning the sinful desires which are upon the earth. And then he lists them, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and so forth. Impurity, evil passions, evil desires. These are old English words that describe these things. Uh, covetousness, uh, that's uh, greed is part of covetousness, uh, which is idolatry. These are the all expressions of sin that need, we need to die to. As believers, we die to sin. We are dead to sin. Prior to being believers, the Bible uses the expression of being dead in sins. So that's living, shall we say, a lifestyle of the dead, of that of uh, sinful living, which leads to death. Uh, just the, the, that difference in phrase, though, shall we say, small words, uh, dead in sin versus dead to sin, is a world of a difference. 
Galatians, moving on now. So that was the second point. First one, dead to the law, dead to sin. Number two. Number three uh, is being crucified, the, the flesh with its passions and desires. If we go back to uh, Galatians, um, but this time we're going to go to Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 24. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. So that's this element of affections and lusts, passions and desires. There are many passions and desires of the flesh, of our human nature, that is to be crucified, is to be put to death, is to be subdued. Now this is not only, these things are not only one-time actions, shall we say, or one-time experiences that happen uh, when we are transformed from darkness to light, when we are saved, when we are regenerated, when we are converted, uh, but it is also a, a daily exercise of spiritual disciplines, of submitting ourselves to God. The Apostle Paul says in another place, I die daily um, to these things uh, implied in that statement. And so likewise, as we battle, as Brother Werner spoke about this morning, the spiritual battle, this is a daily battle, the things that we're fighting against uh, that want to overtake our lives, shall we say, or drag us back into uh, that uh, condition. Crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Um, this relates back to the uh, previous few verses in Galatians 5, where it contrasts the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And so there's one particular uh, statement I want to sort of uh, focus in on. We're not going to expand on all of these, as in some of it is a repeat list of sins that we had just talked about earlier in Galatians 3, about the things to kill. Galatians 5.19 says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, meaning evident, they're revealed, which are these, and he lists them, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I tell you before, the thing, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. One particular uh, verse to uh, look at here, a particular statement is that of strife in verse 20, um, can be translated as selfish ambitions. This is an example of something that believers are to die to or to be crucified, selfish ambitions. The natural man has ambitions which build up self, meaning in ways in which draw attention to ourselves. Um, there may be uh, desires to be famous, maybe uh, desires to be noticed in some way, desires to be um, approved or rewarded or pointed out. And these are not necessarily all bad in that sense, but uh, the root of that comes from desiring to draw attention to ourselves. And in various different societies, there was different ways to do that. We, we have a society where the whole entertainment industry promotes certain people that um, have those ambitions and they have a network of people around them to promote them even further and to market them in various ways such that the world, by the millions, would look at them. Selfish ambitions, those in the sporting industry, those in the entertainment industry, the movies and, the, and so forth, um, 
That is something that is rampant in those industries. Not saying necessarily everybody that works in that industry finds has the same degree of selfish ambition, shall we say. Uh, but nevertheless, that's one place that is found. But that's not the only place because none of us are involved in those industries, shall we say. But that doesn't mean we're now, we're immune from exercising or being tempted by selfish ambition. There's lots of ways for that uh, to play itself out in our own lives. Uh, where we can um, address in a certain way that would attract attention. We can have conversations or say words and mannerisms in which attracts attention to ourselves, uh, maybe boasting about our knowledge um, or experience in a certain uh, area. And we need to have the last word on that subject. Um, or maybe that's typically how we are. We're, we're just a uh, very uh, verbal person. Some are more verbal than others. Those are uh, God has created that difference. But if we find ourselves using our verbal skills, shall we say, to dominate conversations that we're, we're every conversation we're involved in, we're doing ninety percent of the talking. Maybe there's some selfish ambition there. There's something there about wanting to build up one's self. And uh, maybe you're uncomfortable with silence or uncomfortable with giving space for someone else uh, to express their experience or their opinion on the subject or, or whatever the case may be. Always, you need to be the one that's preeminent. There may be an expression of selfish ambition. And that's something that the Bible calls us to, to die to for you personally. Um, of course, there's the whole area of social media. Lots of opportunity for selfish ambition and to be promote oneself by the posts, look at me kind of posts of uh, what I'm doing and so forth. And, and one would feel good about the number of followers or the number of friends or the number of reposts in whatever ways uh, that can continue to be furthered and promoted uh, in our day. Could be all examples of selfish ambition. We could also uh, get into certain areas of expectations that we may have, uh, not only for ourselves, that we would look good, but also for those that that uh, we can influence that can make us look good. And so in, in that way, there may be a unique temptation, shall we say, for those of us that are parents, as that we may be tempted to live out selfish ambitions through our children. Maybe there are certain things we couldn't do when we were growing up, and so we try to push our children to excel in some of those areas. And, and it's and if the children have desire in that, and that can be encouraged, that can be a good thing. But how sad it is, maybe, when parents live vicariously through their children, some of them, and push them to do things that the child really isn't that interested in, and but the parent is a lot more interested in it than the child is, and the parent opportunity for that has now passed, and they can, in a sense, live that through their child and push them in a particular direction. It could be in an education direction. It could be in a career direction. Um, it could be in a, um, a special interest uh, direction, um, in a sporting area uh, direction, uh, and so forth. And we can, we can see that that has caused much damage in the, life, in the experience of their children, and uh, when that goes sour, then even the relationship between parent between the parent can go sour. But that can be an expression of selfish ambition. Why is the parent motivated to push their child in such a way? Is it because they would want the approval of others? Um, and oh, look how good of a parent you are because your child is excelling so high, so high in in this uh, this area. One can be so proud of their children in that way. Is that perhaps an expression of selfish ambition? 
that as believers we need to die to. Those are not the kinds of passions we pour ourselves into. Uh, we can certainly, as parents, as be- of be- uh, as believers, parents p- training our children to be followers of the Lord and to be passionate about that and encouraging our children in those ways. But yet at the same time, they also need to make personal choices of desiring to follow the Lord. They can't do that based on us continually pushing them uh, to be a certain way or to be a certain kind of person, which at the core they may not be. And in a sense, we may be doing them a disservice by pushing along a, a, a pretense, uh, an outward facade, which is not really the core of their heart, where they need genuine repentance and transformation and a real meaningful personal relationship with God that the Lord speaks to them uh, personally and calls them. And he will, of course, uh, and they would need to choose to respond As parents, we can have expectations of certain choices that our children will make. And it may look bad on us when our children make certain choices that we may be embarrassed uh, about. And we may pressure our children or try to control them or manipulate them into certain ways, into what we think are making good choices. And maybe it is good choices, but if it's not coming from their heart and they're doing it as pressured from us, and the reason we are pressuring them is so that we look good to our friends um, and our peers uh, of how our children are all neat in a row and and, and uh, perfectly clones maybe of us of how we would want them to be. That might be an example of selfish ambition playing itself out. And in extreme cases, that may even happen in parents strongly influencing their children and choosing who they will marry. One can imagine how much influence and control one might exercise to that degree Um, that their children feel they don't even have a free choice in choosing their own spouse, but in order to please their parents, they would have to choose this spouse versus someone else. Uh, All examples of selfish possible, selfish ambition playing itself out in the family dynamic, which as believers we need to die to, and to recognize that our children will make, they're, they're their own people, they will make their own choices, some which we will be delighted in, and others choices which may bring us tears. But nevertheless, uh, in every situation, God can redeem those situations, desires to redeem those situations, and desires for us to have a meaningful, good relationship one with another. The Bible speaks a number of things about approval of people. Jesus said that about doing things to be seen of men. In, In the Sermon on the Mount, he addressed this in a number of verses about And notice how he said this, doing good things for the purpose of receiving approval of people. We need to die to this aspect of looking for approval of people and being motivated by the approval of people. We need to be motivated to do good things, certainly, uh, with the right motivation, internal motivation by the Holy Spirit. Looking to others as good examples, of course, that's helpful as well, and the Lord will use that. But in, in Matthew chapter 6, he describes about being careful about alms giving, meaning charitable giving, doing good things, so that you don't be seen of them, and that that's not your motivation. Even uh, talking about prayer, a good necessary spiritual discipline. But even in that, one, in a sense, as we, we can sin in the manner in which we approach prayer, if we do it to receive the approval of people. And to, as he, he did here, as he said here, 
Don't be as the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. They have their reward. As followers of Jesus Christ, those are not to be our motivations. So we talked about being dying, dying to the law, dying to sin, uh, the passions and desires, that of approval of people, uh, and uh, selfish ambitions. So the fourth one, dying to self-confidence. This is another aspect. There's lots of selves involved here. Lots of self that needs to die, needs to be crucified with Christ on a regular basis, shall we say. And uh, the Apostle Paul has a great address about self-confidence. Confidence in our abilities, confidence in our reputation, confidence in our education, uh, and so forth, that he died to. And he gives a great discourse in Philippians chapter 3 about this one. He says here, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, verse 4 of Philippians chapter 3, If any other man thinketh that he might have uh, trust in the flesh, I more. He says, in a sense, he has a great number of reasons to trust in the flesh. And he, in a sense, is somewhat boasting, um, shall we say, if anyone has an opportunity or thinks that you can trust in your flesh, I've got more reasons to trust in my flesh. And he lists them, uh, as he says, of his his uh, pedigree, his heritage, um, where he came from, how he was schooled, his, his uh, diligence, his level of zealousness, and what lengths he went to. And he gives examples of all of these things uh, to the point of persecuting the church. That's how zealous he was of uh, his uh, training. And then in verse 7, he says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. And he expands on that. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Though his credentials were very impeccable indeed. And if he were to be hired as a public speaker, shall we say, you know, there's a little bio about public speakers or various things, it would be great credentials there that would um, justifiably, shall we say, command great respect for this man. But as far as being a servant of Christ, he counted those things as dung. Now, of course, the Lord used even those things that he, his pedigree to certain ways, but the Apostle Paul, in his mind, had to humble himself to that point that he couldn't trust in those things. The Lord worked through those things. His knowledge of the law was fantastic. And we can see that in, in Romans and Galatians and so forth as he's writing about his knowledge of the law and comparing that and translating that, shall we say, to faith in Christ and contrasting that and Abraham's experience and so forth. So no doubt his education brought him that knowledge and he could uh, recite it very well as he's writing in prison. He didn't have reference books with him to be able to know about all these details about Abraham and the law and so forth. This was all in memory. So, of course, the Lord uses his, used his education just as he will ours. Whatever schooling and education we have, he will find a way, can find a way, if we humble ourselves to use it for the purposes of his kingdom. The point is that we not trust in that, that we not hang our hat on that, that we not boast about those kinds of credentials. That's what it is, dying to this aspect of 
self-confidence, that we would um, be confident in the Lord and what he does for us and works in us. Are there ways in which you are confident? Confidence is a good thing. We don't want to go through life uh, being always uh, fearful and uncertain of anything. Uh, we, God has designed us to function with a measure of confidence. And uh, confidence, we, we know when someone, uh, suppose someone, uh, you hire someone to do something, uh, to help you out. Uh, in a particular way. Maybe it's some, something in your home. You hire a tradesman. Some, some, a job needs to be done. Um, you, you would want someone that is competent and confident in their work, not always second-guessing their work, asking you um, if uh, on how it should be done. Like, well, if the person has so low confidence, then I'm not going to hire that person. We need someone else that knows what they're doing and is confident in, in what they do. And so certainly that is a good thing. But it's our confidence in the Lord and in his work in our lives and that we trust in him for that confidence, not trusting in the flesh, in our own abilities, in our own intellect, because that can fail. The weakness, we can we can blank out and suddenly not know what to do. We can be weak and, and, and dizzy and faint and fall to the ground. Whatever it can be, no matter how uh, healthy we uh, want to be or are, There are human weaknesses, and if we just place our trust in that, it's a frail, frail object to put our trust in. We are to die to self-sufficiency and independence. So that's related to self-confidence. Shall we say maybe that's a subheading to self-confidence, is this aspect of self-sufficiency or independence, thinking we can do it ourselves. Uh, We don't need to rely on anybody else. And we could build walls and insurance things all around us, shall we say, and what-if plans and contingency plans in case things go wrong. And some of that, of course, is also wise stewardship to a certain degree. But if we place our confidence in these kinds of things, in self-sufficiency, I've got it all figured out, I've got it all under control, nothing can derail my plans because I've got a contingency plan B and C and D and E, and if this happens, then I've got this under control, and if that happens, I've got that under control and uh, we could be maybe even worried somewhat about it did it did i miss something uh, something else might happen that i didn't foresee by trusting in the lord we don't have to have this attitude of self-sufficiency and independence uh, jesus says to his disciples without me ye can do nothing and so whatever abilities we've have been given some great abilities comes from God. Let's not take credit for that uh, ourselves. Another, he, he, the Lord's Prayer says, Give us this day our daily bread. Interesting how that, uh, to, to me, is a statement of daily dependence, even on the simple things like food. And that was uh, maybe more vivid in that day than it is in our day as much as we have food uh, stored up and the ability to store food with uh, freezers and fridges and so forth. We, we can have food stored up in our houses for weeks and weeks um, <clears throat> and uh, survive. Whereas in that day, that certainly was not the case uh, to the same degree, uh, nearly. But nevertheless, do we acknowledge that it is God that provides 
that for us by various means and methods, certainly, but our confidence is in his ability to provide and in his blessing, not in our ability to do so. Another example of self-sufficiency or this independent type of spirit is being stingy with money, meaning we're not going to donate it because we're, we might need it ourselves. And we need to take care of ourselves because nobody else is going to take care of us. Um, and so therefore we need to have a huge stockpile just in case things go wrong to account for various calamities and losses and so forth and be unwilling to share. But the... It, the Christian economy, shall we say, or God's economy and how he's taught it, <coughs> is not to work that way. In fact, the, the, the first century church was exactly the opposite of that. In sharing their goods, whatever was extra was available to share. And in our society, we have moved away from that, where everyone needs to store up for themselves and live independently. And so that is an example of something that we can die to or need to die to and become more generous and more sharing to those that are in need. Um, Recognizing that at times we will be in need, but in God's economy, He's got it figured out that there will be someone that will then share with us. That's a much more reliable way of sharing, of trusting in Him for that provision, not being foolish with our resources, of course, um, but being generous is a biblical teaching. Another example of this aspect of self-sufficient, maybe we don't rely or trust anyone. If I don't understand it, I'm not going to trust anyone. Um, Or if I want it done right, I, I can't trust anyone else to do it. I have to do it myself. No one else can do it as good as I can. I have to do it myself. Sometimes there is that saying, right? If you want something done right, do it yourself. Um, <clears throat> and sometimes that could be true, as in we might be the best qualified to do something. But if it comes from an attitude, or if that feeds an attitude of self-sufficiency and independence, then that is something that we need to be more intentional about crucifying and taking that risk and asking someone else for their help or delegating a particular task if we are uh, in charge, shall we say, and find ourselves overworked or overwhelmed. Uh, moving on to another example here of being what to crucify. I came across uh, just doing the search of uh, cruci- being crucified. Uh, another reference came up in Galatians. We're in Galatians, but near the end of the chapter, he repeats this theme. Verse 14, Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory. So this is boasting, having confidence in at all, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. So here's a two-way crucifixion, in a sense. Dying, or being dead to, or killing. The world is crucified unto me. Let's unpack that first. As I look this up uh, in uh, other translations, the, the New Living Translation uh, renders it this way, about my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. So this element of the, the type of person that the Apostle Paul has become by being a servant of the Lord, the world 
was unable to, shall we say, market anything to him anymore. Uh, they, they couldn't um, get him as a customer, so to speak. Uh, the world is crucified unto me, dead. There is no um, desire there. There is no uh, attraction there. And I unto the world, both ways. <clears throat> so this element of all that is in the world, this, this word world is used in many, many different ways. And we look at it by context then, of course. The world, that which is against God, that which is uh, sinful, that which Jesus died for. Uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, that he might redeem them, that he might save them, that the world through him might be saved, um, referring, of course, to the people in the world. So the desires of the flesh the, are to be crucified in us, so that the things that are temporary, the things that are not going to last, obviously the things that are against God, we, those fit already some of the other lists that we had already talked about, um, that of the law, that of sin, that of affections and desires, of selfish ambitions, uh, approval of people, self-sufficiency, independence, self-confidence, all of these things are worldly ideas, shall we say, that mount themselves against God. <coughs> but even going beyond that, Shall we say this? Shall we say the world is a very large, um, broad category of things. Worldliness is another phrase that we use at times. Christians are not to be worldly. And we label certain activities or certain lifestyles or certain things as worldly. That's not of God. That is worldly. And so the definitions of those kinds of things would change from one generation to another. We might smile um, at what was defined as worldly by Christians 100 years ago or 50 years ago uh, compared to uh, now and so forth. So we recognize that some of those things, those definitions pass with the passing of time. Uh, but nevertheless, what is at the core of it is those things which are against God or those things which accentuate the temporary the temporal, the things that will pass away, that which is physical, uh, the riches of this world, the, self, the uh, things that we have uh, in life, the comforts thereof, and so forth, uh, that we not hang on to those things. Uh, the Apostle John says in First um, John chapter 2, For all that is in the world, First John chapter 2, verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. So there's this example of being crucified to the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lusts thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth. Forever, And see that contrast of that which is temporary and that which is permanent. But even so, the lust of the eyes, pride of life, lust of the flesh, these are the things of the world. Affluence, the priority of comfort and convenience at the expense of sacrifice. I had a conversation with a brother this morning, and one point that came out in that conversation is we live in a society 
where sacrifice is not as prevalent. Um, with human rights and conveniences and so forth, uh, all what we consider as good advancements in our society, we wouldn't want to uh, undo those things, shall we say. We, we enjoy those benefits. But perhaps an un, um, unfortunate side effect is we tend to be unwilling to sacrifice. And we carry over that mindset then as a Christian. Well, if it's not convenient to serve, then I won't do that because that, that, that's uncomfortable or it's inconvenient or it uh, doesn't fit my schedule, it doesn't fit my preferences and so forth. That's a worldly mindset that we need to die to. Serving Christ is not about convenience and comfort and fitting my schedule and fitting my timetable and so forth and fitting my priorities. That's, that's what we need to die to. It's about serving sacrificially uh, in a way that furthers the kingdom of God because its purpose is far greater than our own. Lots of other examples of worldliness, uh, that of ideas, of mindsets, um, uh, of what relationships look like, of what a marriage is supposed to function, how a marriage is supposed to happen, or how falling in love is supposed to happen, and so forth. All these ideas are prevalent in the culture um, that influence, can influence us. Have we died to those kinds of things? But in, in the conclusion, um, we've really only uncovered the first half of the verse here in verse 20, this was the key verse that we talked about, right? I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And so the whole point of this, shall we say, acts of crucifixion or acts of putting to death and killing and destroying is not an end unto itself. The whole point is to live unto Christ and to make room, shall we say, or that this is how we make room, or part of the process of growing in Christ, to make room to live in Christ. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The call that the Apostle Paul had, and that we have as believers, is far greater than that which is being crucified. And we don't want to just sort of focus on this aspect, even though most of the message was all about what to crucify and what to kill. Let's not lose sight of the purpose and that of meaningful, eternal life is the blessing that we have in Jesus Christ. To live in that uh, with joy and fullness the Apostle Paul said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us as we experience the fullness of His presence and hope of eternal glory and eternal life. May the Lord inspire us uh, with these thoughts. Amen.